Hello world, what is up? Welcome to the Feelings Lab. I'm your host, Matt Forte, and for today's episode, we're talking about mirth. That's right, mirth, or amusement rather. And man, am I thrilled. After the last couple episodes, we thought we'd let the pendulum swing in the other direction and tackle something a little less intense. Now, as a man who performed Shakespeare all throughout my high school career, I'm quite familiar with the term. And believe me, if there's one thing I love, it's to be amused. Not too long ago, I would frequent parks built entirely around this purpose. But what is mirth? Why do we feel amusement? As we get older, is it harder to access it? Or are we simply jaded from overexposure and need to look a little harder? According to Google Books Ngram Viewer, use of the word mirth peaked around the 1820s and then declined steadily for a hundred years or so, hitting an all-time low around the mid-80s, which more or less tracks. Uh, however, since then, we've been trending up. Uh, the data only runs through 2019, though, so the jury is still out on how the pandemic has impacted our use of the word mirth, but my money is on. It didn't help. Anyway, despite most associating the word with a New Yorker cartoon, or rightfully, something written in the 1800s, uh, we might actually be engaging in mirth or mirth-related activities a lot more than we realize, especially if you've encountered any of the work from today's guest. Uh, once again, by my virtual side, my friends and co-hosts Dr. Alan Cowan and Daniel Credit Cobb are here. And speaking of that guest, I can't imagine a better fit. A prolific maker of mirth, if you will. He's the author of the acclaimed collection of funny true stories called Vacation Land. He also wrote three books of fake facts and invented trivia, all of them New York Times bestsellers. Uh, you've seen him on The Daily Show, FX's Married, HBO's Bored to Death, and Cinemax's The Nick. His fantastic podcast, Judge John Hodgman, actually celebrated its 500th episode earlier this year. Uh, he also contributes a weekly column under the same name for The New York Times Magazine. Please welcome to the show author, actor, humorist, the great John Hodgman, everybody. John, thank you for being here. How are you doing, sir? Thank you so much. I am as okay as possible. These days, I no longer ask, <laughs> are you? how are you doing? I just say, are you? You as okay as possible and the, and the acceptable answers are i'm okay i'm okay minus or i'm okay plus got I'm it. okay plus to be here oh we got the plus i'm yeah. honored uh, it's a lot it's a lot of fun uh, uh and i'm really excited to talk about mirth and really frankly moved to mirth by the idea that mirth peaked in the 1820s. <laughs> Isn't that like, something? What a, mirth, what a mirthful decade. The rise of the first industrial revolution, child, child labor, slavery, the Missouri Compromise, 1820. What a laugh that was to, to invent the state of Maine so as to invent the, state, the slave state of Missouri. Yeah, uh, a lot of fun was happening of. in the 1820s. No, uh, apparently the most fun imaginable, according yeah. to this chart from Google that to I've only just learned. To laughed at these eighteen twenties. Yeah, what else? What else could you do? To stop I would argue we're crying? at a similar point where you're correct. We have to laugh. Uh, yeah. Those are the only options. Um, well, it's, it's also, so I wonder if we biologically have to laugh, but that's another question for later on. Keep talking. Yeah, one we may very well answer today. <laughs> right. That's what we call in the podcast game. A tease. I love it. I <laughs> Stick around it. for the end of the podcast to find out the answer. Until then, listen to this. Uh, listen to this ad for a mattress. <laughs> <laughs> I. It is 
so amazing to have you on this show, John. Just real quick, like not just as a, a, a fan of podcasts, which I am, but as a, a JJH fan, but it, you've popped up in so many of my favorite podcasts. So your presence on our show is, is a true podcast badge of honor. So thank it you, is, sir. Uh, it's it nice is to have absolutely, you. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the world of comedy, and regular podcast appearances mean your career is over. So that's... <laughs> The more you're on podcasts, the more you know you are no longer a relevant comedian to a Even lot of pandemic, television producers. I feel oh, like the, the pandemic, pandemic changed all rules. I'm just saying. Pre-pandemic <laughs> in the old world. Yeah. Right. Yeah. If, you're do, if you're doing podcasts, that means you're not doing stand-up. Post-1820s. Which, which, frankly, I am the lot of because I can barely stand up as it is. <laughs> Uh, delightful. Alan, uh, Danielle, before we get any deeper into things, uh, are you two as okay as possible? Doing great. <laughs> Thanks for asking. I, I, I'm going to match John's okay plus with an okay plus. Yeah. Like Probably it. the extra plus being because of his presence. So. Oh, that's very kind of you. Thank you very yeah. much. Oh, it's great to see. Great to see. Of course, we worked together on the Apple ads so many years ago. It was a little embarrassing that you didn't remember that we worked together. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> no, the reverse is true. I Danielle was one of the you one of the create one of the creative. For, you worked for Apple in design, right? Oh yeah. That, well, I actually I, initially I was working at Mao at Chaya Day. Oh okay. Doing, and then I I went over that rainbow bridge into the design group at Apple. Right. Basically, so. you got me the job. So I mean, thank you for that and every career move afterwards. It's all down uh. to. Your, yeah. your honor, Judge John Hodgman. Thank you. Thank you for the job. And thank you for changing my life completely and everything else that happened afterwards. Still, every now and then I wake up and I'm like, that happened. That was incredible. Thank you. It was certainly a moment most, in time. Yeah. My favorite thing about that, not to make this all about our, Do it. Uh, our relationship a decade ago, but actually what I loved is that... Um, Everyone loved you so, so, so much. It was so, I love the twist of, it was something that was meant to tell the story of Apple and for people to understand the differences between a Mac and a PC. And yet the most beloved character was yours truly. Yeah. Everyone loves, everyone loves the villain more than the hero. <laughs> the, hero the villain is always a more interesting character. I don't you're agree with that. More mirthful. More I was going to say, I would think yeah, you're, oh, I, I agree with that, but I also think you're, you're not giving yourself enough credit. I think you have a big part to do. And I was going to bring this up a little bit later. Uh, just that very notion of you were meant to be the foil, but everybody, the, the only critique I ever heard was we all love the PC guy. He's fantastic. Yeah. Um, so which should we talk about first, whether we are biologically determined to laugh or how lovable I am? I want to hit both. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Couldn't they be inextricably linked, sir? I believe you may have overlooked the scientific connection between those two things. It's very very possible. We're going to come back to it. Let's start uh, at the easiest place to start. Alan, I'm going to come to you, sir, as the man behind the maps, charting human emotion with detail and nuance previously unseen. Break this one down for us. Tell me about mirth or amusement. Actually, you know what? 
let's go there for a second. Am, am I okay to use mirth and amusement interchangeably like that as such? G- give me a little bit of background. Talk yeah, to me about sure. the I think like mirth is used in the same way that copulation is used. Uh, it's sort of a weird hey, <laughs> scientific yo. phrase. That you definitely know about the lifestyle of comedians. Well, <laughs> <laughs> there's no copulation. I, mean, I meant the word mirth and the word copulation, uh, but it could uh, be, it right, could be that too. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> but it also uh, reflects the fact that a scientist talking about humor, sort of, there's something so unfunny about it, kind of like a sex ed teacher talking about sex. So maybe it's, maybe it's similar in that way to use the word mirth. Um, but yeah, as soon as you start talking about that, it, it, it sucks the air out of the room. <laughs> but, uh, um, no, that's one of the things that has been most, one of the most deadly things you can do is try to explain why jokes work, right, why right. humor is. And because, you know, you're, you know, you're dissecting a live animal. It's gross. Yes. And uh, <laughs> it's I mean, not a, ter- a terrible right. image that I'm sorry I conjured, but you know what I mean? It's... Uh, <laughs> The, the the thing dies on the table right. uh, when you're trying to so, examine something as weird and magical and as elusive as uh, humor. So that's the, that's the preface where I was going to say. But yeah, I think the the if you're if you're trying to dissect humor, uh, the the most basic kind of form of humor in human behavior is tickling, hmm. uh, probably because it relates to sort of the play fight instinct that you see in other mammals. So almost every mammal engages in play fight at a young age and they do something really similar to laughing, whether it's like open, opening their mouths, baring their teeth in kind of a similar way to the way we smile or actually making kind of a laugh like sound. Uh, in mice, you, I've talked about this on the, on the podcast before in mice, it's something that they do, but it's hypersonic. So you have to lower the, uh, the frequency of it to hear it. And then it sounds like laughter. Um, That's what I say on stage when I bomb too. Yeah, <laughs> it's just hypersonic laughter. I, I understand. I'm, I'm receiving it in my ears. It doesn't matter. If you just lower the frequencies in this room, you'll see that everyone thinks this is hilarious. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. All right. So where does that come from? So laughter signals that you're emptying your lungs, and it's a signal that you can't possibly be threatening right now because you're not prepared to take effortful mm. action. When you're emptying your lungs, your, your bodily movements can't be aligned with your breath, um, and suddenly you become weakened, and you're advertising that. And so that's why it's involved in play fighting, because both parties to the play fight want to advertise that they don't actually mean to hurt each other. Um, they're mm-hmm. like tickling each other, going for like the most vulnerable parts of the body. Uh, but the laughter signals, hey, this is not a real fight. If it was a real fight, tickling wouldn't work, basically. Yeah, but the tickler isn't the one who's, I mean, in human tickling relationships, the tickler doesn't laugh. The tickly laughs. That Mirth is true. lies in the tickly, we may that say. Is... No, well, I respectfully <laughs> disagree. I think tickling is a, is a, is a form of torture. <laughs> and and, bo- and bodily intrusion and there isn't anything funny about it and i'm speaking as a dad who used to well <laughs> tickle tickle my own children until i appreciated like oh this is a form of bodily think, control wait, hang on a second. What, what made the flip at what point did your children turn around one day and go this is a form of torture or oh, oh uh when did I, you stop tickling and become a, an advocate for uh the ceasing of all ticklage well, no, I'm not against I'm not against ceasing tickling because it is okay. pl- it is play, and it, and all sorts of play are allowed where there is mutual affirmative consent. Um, and but part of it, part of it came up, you know. So I I have a podcast called Judge John Hodgman, 
where people call in with disputes uh, that are usually interpersonal disputes, emotional disputes. And I kind of listen to both sides and say, you know, who's right and who's wrong. And Mm -hmm. a lot of this has to do with who who loads the dishwasher incorrectly or it's philosophical, like, you know, is a hot dog a sandwich? No, it is not. (laughs) Um, But and I don't want to talk about it, but uh, because it's not. No need to. Okay. Okay. Are you cool with this? Oh, I'm on board. Okay, great. Thank you. 100%. You're going to get these letters, not me. So it's fine. It's your podcast. (laughs) (laughs) And But, you know, a number of times uh, there is, we've had uh, people write in saying, my partner tickles me and I don't like it and I say no, and they do it anyway, which obviously Mm -hmm. is not cool. Yeah. And there is a similar case where a, 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 a couple who were living together a man and a woman, the guy would jump out and scare his um, spouse uh, and thought that was really funny. And she didn't, for some reason, like to be scared, <laughs> didn't like to be wandering into a house full of uh, uh, with, with her, her, her husband hiding in a closet to jump out and scare her. He found that to be really, really funny. Right. And right. The two cases seemed very, very similar to me all of a sudden, right? Because we can say, oh, yeah, jumping out and scaring someone is kind of mean. And if they're not into it, then you shouldn't do it. But tickling always gets this pass. It's just tickling, right? But I was listening to this podcast with Fred Armisen about horror and reflecting on how it's been noted many, many times before by people smarter than me that screaming and laughing are are very similar hmm. Uh, ex- uh, physical expressions, especially in that they are involuntary. And humor, much like horror, is designed to provoke a very, uh, a very specific, involuntary physical vocal reaction that is kind of mysterious to us. Although you, you know, you seem to have got it figured out, Doc. But you know, <laughs> and you know, Maybe. triggering tr- using tickling to trigger laughter. From a from a professional humorist point of view, I, mean, I can't just go out into the audience and start tickling people. That's a very cheap way to get laughs because it is truly a, it truly is like a, 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 a an automatic it response. I, it would work. It would I work. submit that you would still sell a lot of tickets. It would just be a different crowd. I submit that's pro- yeah yeah so, you could be right there. But I mean, I, and I'm not I'm not like I yeah. So on my podcast. You know, I've become very much more sensitive than I used to be about issues like touching people's bodies, mm-hmm. tickling them and that sort of thing. And and, you know, that I think I think my kids and I are fine. We will go through whatever amount of therapy we have to go through. But, you know, it is true that tickling is taking control of a person's nervous system in a in a way that is is a little bit scary yeah. and should be considered thoughtfully before you deploy. And in in terms of comedy though and humor, it's most interesting to me in that it speaks specifically to that thing, which is that mirth is not predictable and not controllable mm-hmm. by the person who is feeling it. So, so Alan, I'm gonna in in terms of the the alliterative science of mapping mirth, um, I'm curious. Where do we find, and John, this is something that I always get excited about in each episode is these, like how closely cuddled and nestled all of these emotions you wouldn't expect to be with something like mirth. So listening to your stories and the experiences of other people on the podcast, um, your podcast, I'm curious 
Alan, what lives around mirth is discomfort are what's around there. Because, you know, it's funny, the, the kind of 1820s reference for mirth makes sense because I feel like we should all have powdered wigs on just to be able to be worthy of talking about mirth. It feels very period period sensitive term. It's a, um, yeah, but, yeah. but anyway, so, so curious about that because mirth, mirth almost as a word is like an uncomfortable version of humor. So what yeah. to define it exactly and how it's different than other things. Yeah. I mean, we use the word amusement most often and, and people see amusement and laughter. So what mm-hmm. else is associated with laughter or things like laughter? I mean, the, the big ones are on one end of the spectrum embarrassment. And we had an episode on that. And people have this nervous laugh they do when they're embarrassed. And also when they're sort of meeting each other for the first time and all kinds of other uh, somewhat socially ambiguous situations. So that's pretty much speaks to the, the, the side of the person being tickled. <laughs> it's like, I mean, no harm. Uh, please, I violated some social norm. But uh, at the end of the day, like I didn't mean to or blah, blah. And then they recover. Other people laugh along with them. And the other side of the spectrum of... The laugh, I would say, is the dominant laugh. And people have studied this as like submissive dominant, but I think of it as embarrassment versus a probably triumph or contempt. So the triumph laugh is like, ha ha, and like contempt is like, well, hearty, hard, That's That's not even a real laugh. That's just sarcasm. Uh, now so I'm laughing. Now I am laughing out of embarrassment. So, <laughs> so okay. So the person being tickled, they're signaling, "I I can't hurt you right now." Tickling, you know, you've probably won the play fight if you're if you're successfully tickling the other person and you've sort of gotten to their most vulnerable spots or whatever. Um, and then tickling in, in mammals, you see, evolves also into other somewhat more complex play behaviors like chasing each other. Um, mice chase each other and laugh. So even when they're not touching each other, it's the same laugh as when they uh, tickle each other and they can play little games. Uh, and human children and humans of all ages, to some extent, do that as well. This is that mouse laughter that only you can hear? Yeah, I don't have it, but if you, if you lower the, the frequency uh, of it, yeah. You can. No, I believe it. I, believe <laughs> I think it. maybe little kids uh, can hear it. It's like one of those like really high frequency yeah. sounds that, that adults can't hear. Like Cloris Leachman laughing. It's like that. <laughs> <laughs> I love her voice so much. And just... <laughs> uh, okay. So then the other end of the spectrum is like the dominant laugh triumph. And what that usually means is like, and, and, and again, it's like emptying the lungs, signaling that you do not need to expend any effort right now, either to say like, I submit uh-huh. or to say, I don't need to expend any effort anymore because I'm so dominant over you. And so it actually has some really negative ways in which it appears. So that's why I think it appears in bullying where the bully is laughing, right. uh, teasing, um, that sort of thing. I mean, teasing can be good, but the classic Nelson from the Simpsons. Ha ha. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, Emptying the lungs. That's really yeah. interesting. I had never considered that. Yeah. 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 And signaling. And I'm asthmatic. Out loud. Yeah. Like I think about my lungs a lot. So. <laughs> so that's the space of amusement. And of course there's adoration too. There's an adult adoration laugh that you associate with like uh, little, you know, puppies. And there's actually many other kinds of laughs. There's kind of like a, a burn kind of laugh where you, somebody, it's kind of like a shot and fray that laugh almost. Um, and you can actually identify all of these, at least within cultures and across cultures, you just see people laughing in response to things that are meant to be amusing and probably a few more variations. 
When you were uh, at the risk of asking a question, I've asked every episode of this podcast, but I, I'm truly fascinated to be brought into the lab with you when you're doing the experiments and, and collecting all this data. Did you uh, accidentally develop a separate data set of like what people are amused by and not amused by in your attempts to elicit amusement? We really, did you have things that you thought, all right, this will get the reactions we're looking for, and then it didn't read or it didn't play in the same way like a, a stand-up tries out material in a room? Or, or talk, talk me through that process. I'm yeah. really curious. I mean, so that, that we kind of... So most of my experiments are done online. So we did one where we looked at millions of YouTube videos okay. and we actually labeled the facial expression that goes with laughter, um, which is more diagnostic of amusement. And, <laughs> and then we looked at like what the context were where that occurred. And across cultures, there were contexts like jokes and parody, where you could pull that from like the title of the video or the description. And so you know that's what it's about. And there's always laughing. You know, any culture you look at, it's one of the strongest associations you see. But what people are laughing at is really different across cultures. Mm -hmm. So I think like the sense of humor and what is funny is very culture specific and evolves over time. Very cool. Although there are certain universals like uh, physical humor, probably. Farts. You know, yeah, farts. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, uh, whatever Shakespeare <laughs> was doing. Um, yeah, some of that stuff right. is you know, farting. Farting. He was farting. Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah, he was I mean, that's comedy farts. 101. Yeah, I know I was in about. high school when I performed the Shakespeare that I performed, but I don't recall a time in my life that was more filled with over-exaggerated groin thrusts than that time. Every, everybody that direct, any, any director was like, you really want to lean into it. And like that was a big, so yeah, farts were definitely in there as well. Right. And, you know, that, that has a lot to do with the breaking of certain cultural taboos about mm -hmm. what is societally acceptable or not. And a lot of the humor in Shakespeare is about subversion of societal roles. Yeah, that's a really good story. Social norms determine a lot yeah. of it. Like, if something is not in violation of social norms, it's probably not funny. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. and, that, and, you know, it's interesting. I'd never really thought of comedy in terms of play fighting before, but I should have because so much of the language, particularly of stand-up comedy is very aggressive. Mm -hmm. You know, when you do really well, you've killed an audience, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> when yeah. you don't do very well, you die on stage, Yeah, you know? Um, and there is an, um, there is a measure of playfulness and fightiness in a, in a lot of comedy and, yeah. Uh, in, in terms of, uh, particularly in stand up, in terms of attitudes of, of dominance and taking attitudes of dominance, then posing as submissive, then, you know, it's all in storytelling, obviously, but it's hijacking, it seems, a lot of those very primal play fight instincts, too. Oh, yeah. I mean, to, diffuse as yeah. a fight. Like, if it's a real right. fight, it can become a play fight. And then. I know we talk about Dacker's research more often when he's not here for some reason, but Dacker's <laughs> research. Um, has shown that when people are talking about serious conflicts in their lives, if they can tease each other about it and evoke laughter, that's a much more effective way to resolve the conflict mm -hmm. than to really attack each other. It's probably what you do in your in your in your judge role. Oh no, I just attack people. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, it elevates it to process rather than content. It, it lightens it a little bit to yeah. where you can step outside of your roles and try on other other feelings to to reposition or recalibrate. Um, John, I heard this thing a very long time ago. I feel like I might have heard it in the like 
Brian McKee adaptation like moment where it was like the idea that comedy is an angry art. And what I found to be true for a lot of your work, actually, whether it's whether it's you, whether it's you in combination with a writer's room, whether it's you spontaneous in the moment on your podcast, is it's almost like what's the way of describing truth in a way that catches us off guard so that we can think about it a different way, feel it a different way so we can handle it. And I'm just curious for you, when you are thinking about material, whether it's on your own or with other writers, what is the feeling that you have when you know you're onto something or where you're like, this is the way this wants to work, or this is the way we want to put this forward? You know, I, I first, I have to take a little issue with the description of comedy being an angry art. There are a lot of mm. angry people in comedy, for sure. And, you know, as we were just discussing, I think there's a lot of comedy that that is linked to and flows from f- flows from some deep aggression. Right. Um, and, and yet I think I and certain other comedians that I know, like Kristen Schaal, and mm-hmm. I'm not, I don't even really consider myself, I consider myself a humorist because most of my work is done sitting down. Mm-hmm. My work is not necessarily <laughs> designed to provoke laugh out loud laughter. I'm, I'm, I'm grateful if I get a wry chuckle, that's all I need. <laughs> but real comedians like Kristen Schaal or Eugene Merman uh, or Wyatt Snack or um, uh, Josh Gondelman, you'd be hard pressed to say that they were coming at this place coming at comedy from a point of uh, anger. Why, why it can be very angry. I I think the way I understood the angry part was not necessarily the actual anger, but more like as a corrective antidote to say, couldn't the world be this way? Why is it this way? Like the inquiry piece of like, that's kind of what what I understood it to be. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think that what you would find, what you would find in a lot of the humor of the comedians that I've described is a kind of curiosity and probing mm. uh, desire to sort of unpack uh, assumptions and lay them bare. Mm. Um, you know, f- for, for me, the moment that I hear the term mirth peaked in the 1820s, that makes me go to Wikipedia to say, well, I know the 1820s wasn't fun for a lot of people. Let's, <laughs> <laughs> Let's unpack that a little bit. Who was feeling mirth in the 1820s? Mm. And that's a pretty typical comedic move, right? Which is to take a presumption and turn it on its head and and show what was really happening or really going on. When I worked at The Daily Show, my job was to, speaking of the 1820s, when I worked at The Daily Show <laughs> uh, well a long, long time ago, I was their resident expert. And my job was to present not as a comedian, but as a very self-serious white male Tweety expert on all subjects who would say the most horrible things, but would be allowed to say those things and be taken at a kind of face value because of the authority that I projected, right? Mm -hmm. So, for example, the kind of game that I would play on The Daily Show, would we'd be talking about economics, which was not on its face very funny. And I would say to John, be called in to, to comment on some weird foreign currency issue. You know, he would say, it's not very funny, is it? I was like, well, they don't call economics the dismal science for nothing. So that's a true, true saying, right? And he said, because it's so boring. I was like, no, because it was named for Sir Eustace Dismal, the, 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 British, the British economist in the, in the Industrial Revolution who first proposed 
making smokestacks out of children. Um, and then uh, there, there's the wry chuckles that I was hoping for. Thank you very much. <laughs> but just the grimmest picture of the Industrial Revolution. And then I followed by saying, of course, the problem was that if you make the smokestacks out of children, who will you get to clean them? Because that's a, a horrible, <laughs> a horrible truth that children use to, you know, to clean smokestacks during the Industrial Revolution because they were so small and free. They worked for nothing. <laughs> too soon. Yeah. So, yeah, too soon. Exactly. <laughs> so, you know, that that was kind of the that would be a line that I would get on where, again, it's a kind of a breaking of taboo. It's taking taking the audience to a scary place and saying something with a straight face that is true is so ridiculous. Right. And yet is true that it provokes laughter and then giving permission to, to laugh at it, I think, was sort of the game that I that I would play. Mm. Now, I guess that that is angry to the point of view of uh, humor can be a social corrective, right? And we talk about child labor on The Daily Show in, you know, whatever year it was, 1829, the last time I was on the show or whatever. Mm. And we talk about we talk about child labor during the Industrial Revolution, but of course, child labor continues today. So ideally, that is a, an expression of a value that through joking kind of maybe raises awareness on some particular level, aside from just saying something sort of ridiculous and horrific with a straight face. And it's also a commentary on the idea of white male authority, which is always was the joke of my character on the show, which is like people were showing up on people were showing up on cable news, real cable news, not fake cable news like the daily show with just an expert label underneath them and they could say whatever they wanted. There was no proof that they knew anything about what they were talking about and the, the erosion of expertise, which is, um, I'm not sure if you noticed something that's been happening a lot lately in our culture. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was something that I was always, cause I remember first seeing you on the daily show back in the, I don't know. I think I watched it by candlelight. Right. And, um, the we book, used to do it as shadow puppet plays. That's the one. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Mm -hmm. I was out there in the field. That's right. And uh, and you were talking about your book, uh, the area of my expertise, and I immediately got it. And and I combed through it, and I described that to uh, friends at the time, and to this day, as brute force amusement because it was so uh, <laughs> densely. Every page, every line yeah. was densely packed with this very smart, very fun. There was something there every inch of that book. And you had done something so beautifully where you pushed the absurdity to the point where it came back around. And suddenly these incredibly absurd things were facts. They, they felt true, even though they were obviously not true, but you were delivering them in such a way. And, and you've always managed to have this air, this character that you've carried with you, not we, we talked before the, we hit record about the PC guy. How everybody found the PC guy lovable. When you were an expert on the oh, Daily Show. Did you record any of that? Oh, we might have. I don't know. I can put, uh, you know what? We, we have it now. Anybody else want to verify that we said uh, I just John need is as very much lovable. lovability of me as in this podcast as possible. But go on. You were saying. <laughs> high lovability. In that. High lovability. High, very well, high. I mean, it's interesting because you say, you say that that book is, and I'm not disagreeing with you. It's, uh, you're making me reflect on it. That that first book that I wrote, The Areas of My Expertise, which was a, you know, pretended to be an almanac of true facts, but all the facts were f wildly fake. Like, <laughs> you know, a list of the nine U.S. presidents who secretly had hooks for hands yes, and stuff like that. Exactly. <laughs> and it was all, and, and it's interesting because you, you describe it as brute force, and but I'm a lovable guy. Look at me. I'm not Mr. Brute Force. I'm an, I'm an asthmatic weirdo nerd from Brookline, Massachusetts. I'm not an angry comic. I didn't have a bad upbringing. 
You know what I mean? I'm not I'm not expressing my anger at the world. I'm not working through my my profound and I think rather problematic uh, fear of the trans community on Netflix, like certain comics. I'm a nice guy. I'm a nice guy here doing nice comedy. But it's but it's true that like there that when I wrote that book, the nine U.S. presidents who had hooks for hands. Like I, I, my rule was that it just couldn't be absurd. It couldn't be the nine U.S. presidents who had fishbowls for heads. Right. There's no there's no referent there. Hooks for hands is this weird exotic boys adventure pirate story kind of thing. Probably plausible. Yeah, probably plausible. Right. Exactly. And it also and it also spoke to him. The, the reason that I that I I immediately hooked onto it, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> was it was that you know uh, FDR had polio and was in a wheelchair and no one talked about it and no one photographed him in the wheelchair so this became a way of expressing like what how we used to deal with public figures how they would have these wild out in the open secrets that we don't have anymore so i would say FDR you know of course had a hook for a hand but the public never knew because they only I had two versions of the joke. One was they only ever photographed him from the wrist up. That was the soft version. <laughs> and the other one was no one ever noticed because his hook was shaped like a wheelchair, which makes no sense at all. But this, you know, you choose A, B. <laughs> the thing about my book is I could write all five versions of the joke and it just took up space on the page and I got paid. You know, it didn't matter. <laughs> it just worked that way. Yeah. Um, but yeah, to, to that point, to your point of you are not a brute force guy. You are lovable John Hodgman. And so I always enjoyed yeah. watching because you would bring this character uh, that we would see on television is this expert, this person who's or sometimes in your books, who's arrogant, who's all these things that normally would be off putting. But we still we were you were so charming and endearing. And I just was always fascinated by how you would strike that balance. And if it's something that you had to think about, it, like, well, I don't want to be too much of a know it all jerk here because then I'll lose them. Or if it came very naturally because it's just who you are. It's like you said, you're not that guy. You're John. But when you become that guy, the, the juxtaposition of those two personalities at once is what made it work so well. So did you have well, to work really hard or was it really easy? Thank, thank <laughs> you. And it was not hard. I mean, you know, creativity is both the easiest and the hardest thing in the world. Mm -hmm. Like, it's not like I sat down and go, I got to find a way to merge these two personalities. And, <laughs> you know, was, the fact is that I am a know-it-all asshole, uh, part, partly. Well, you went to Yale. I'm, and I did go to, thank you, I did go to Yale University, which is a, a four, if you don't know, it's a four-year four year accredited college in Southern Connecticut. I am a know-it-all. I've always loved being a know-it-all. I've loved knowing it all, even though I really only know some, to be honest. But I also am a person of, I think, genuine curiosity. And most important is I'm, I'm an insecure person who who... You know, I, I like and love people, but I also desire to be liked and loved. Now, you know, I, I see you all falling over. I may be the only person on earth who feels this way. I'm not sure. All I can speak, speak of is from my experience. And, you know, before we got on here, I was like, oh, right. You know, humor is. And again, once again, it's the, it's the, the language of combat. It's disarming, as you put it out, you know. Mm -hmm. My book was brute force, to be sure, because I just hammered people with these jokes. These really like one after the other, not caring, little jokes, big jokes, small jokes. It didn't matter. It was just a barrage. It's all language of of conflict, which is funny because I am personally deeply very conflict averse. And that's the thing. It's like, why? 
you know, like I always thought of, of laughter as being a, a byproduct of screaming. Like, you know, my co-host on the Judge John Hodgman show has a great, serious interview show called Bullseye on NPR. And years ago, he was interviewing a, a, a comedian, British comedian named Jimmy Carr. And Jimmy Carr tried to explain laughter as a byproduct of screaming. And it, like, this is what happens when some time ago, a long time ago in prehistory, our ancestors were being chased by predators. We were running away from them screaming in order to make ourselves seem bigger and to scare them away. And when that tiger, that saber toothed tiger or whatever slipped on a banana peel and fell off a cliff and you survived, <laughs> that scream turned into a laugh of relief, right? That build of tension and then the relief of the punchline is such a big part of any joke, right? Mm -hmm. Like that is, that is a, it is a creation of a sense of danger and then a resolution of that danger in a way that is a huge relief. And I think that that's a very important insight, but I've had a bigger insight today, Alan, from you about this fight, play fight um, uh, uh, model for, for laughter. And the and you remove it from the physical, and it becomes making jokes in a kind of in a kind of battle. And why biologically would I need to make a joke, right? Because play fighting, right, among mammals, presumably is rehearsal for uh, 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 getting a mate to choose you, right? You're gonna butt you're gonna butt your horns <laughs> against the other male mammals' horns in order to look dominant. So that so that the so that the female most commonly in this animal population would choose you over the weaker one. Yeah. Well, I don't got any horns. <laughs> you look at me like who's going to love me? I better have some jokes in my pocket. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like, and that and it's absolutely true that, you know, like I, I, I really just struck me. It's like, oh, it's, it's like all like all evolutionary biology is as simple as that. It's like making jokes for so many comedians is the only way that they will get attention and feel briefly dominant in this world among gender sign of birth men, macho men comedians, and even weakling barely, barely man comedians like me too. So it's a, it is a social attractor that is non-physical and, and it signifies in intellectual acuity and to yeah. a degree empathy you know, um, knowing how other people work that I think is attractive to other people. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it goes hand in hand with the tension part too. I think building tension, being able to build that tension is also a signal of, I guess, like whatever verbal strength or, or mental strength. Um, and, and let's then say, being able let's to say unpack skill. Let's say skill, 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 yeah. but, but you're right. It's strength. It's strength. It's, yeah. and it's true of all storytellers. It's like, can I demand your attention? Yeah. And keep it and mm -hmm. control you for a period of time through my words. <laughs> well, even even just from the perspective of winning a fight, sometimes, uh, you know, playing dead is is kind of funny, but it, it can actually help you survive. Uh, and so the, there might be other ways in which like, things kind of evolved out of play fighting that um, really do signify your ability to survive in different scenarios propagate those I genes. <laughs> I don't think that I ever realized that Warner Brothers was secretly an animal research lab with everything that happened to Wiley e. Coyote. When you just talked about slipping on the banana peel and falling off the cliff, I was like, oh my goodness. Okay. Well, yeah. <laughs> if Jimmy Carr's story is to be believed, those were documentaries. That's those right. were, yes, that's what those were. <laughs>
Um, we've talked a lot, and rightfully so, about amusement and its relation to humor. Uh, but I jokingly mentioned in the introduction that I used to go to amusement parks and amusement parks exist with all different flavors of amusement. There's thrill rides where you can scare yourself. Yes. There's uh, parades where everybody's super happy. There's all these different layers. No so one, no one's happy in a parade. <laughs> <laughs> a waste There's of a time. whole song called I Love a Parade. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's uh, that that song was commissioned by Big Parade. <laughs> Big Parade Corp. Parades, you just stand around in the sun. It's uncomfortable. <laughs> or, you know, the best case scenario, you're on a float waving because you're a marshal. Could I, could I could I interest you in a nighttime extravaganza, perhaps, instead of a parade? Uh, I'll take an extravaganza, just okay. a, para a parade. Okay. But I know what you're saying. But you understand, <laughs> amusement, uh, with, at least in the context of a park, is not uh, limited to the box of, I'm going here to laugh at something. Right. Um, how, does that how does that work scientifically, Alan? How are you guys accounting for these different flavors of amusement? Do you, do you have different titles for them? Do you categorize them differently? I know the answer, but Alan... If you want to take a swing at it, it's fine. Uh, well, now I feel like I'm going to be wrong, but I no, think, I think you're going to be right. One of the big uh, ways that we account for them is by mixing them with other emotions. So amusement, adoration, amusement, awkwardness, amusement, plus relief. There's all these different flavors of amusement in that sense. And they all kind of have their own context in which they happen and almost a culture developed around them. Funny animals kind of running into things as like amusement, adoration. Um, like those crazy mice that are, you're, you're talk, always talking about, those laughing mice who are running around and right. running into <laughs> exactly. each other. Yeah, yeah. The, the, even that, that's, you know, that's physical comedy kind of amusement and there's kind of amusement and empathy or empathic pain kind of grown amusement uh, yeah. is, is a thing as well. So, there, that's one way to conceptualize it. Another way is to think about just different subtypes of amusement and, and those do exist. There's different kinds of jokes. Um, and people laugh at them in different ways. There's kind of a, I don't know, uh, I think probably John would probably know better about this, uh, but, <laughs> but there, there's, there's kind of a, a laugh that you do that's acknowledging something's funny without it really being funny, like a, in response to a pun. There's <laughs> then a laugh that you do yeah. um, when you see somebody uh, in pain and that you don't like, it's shot and it kind of laugh. Anyway. Mm. That, <laughs> and then there's the laugh of, of, you know, this is true of, of people who've worked in comedy their whole lives, which is the laugh that doesn't exist, but but is sincere, which is, yeah, that's funny. Just to say, <laughs> that's funny. That's funny. That, that, I've seen it all, but that'll make someone laugh. Yeah. Uh, I, so that's a real that's a real phenomenon that exists within the, the world of professional comedians. That's not a pet peeve where someone says that's really funny. That that comes from a place or is it dependent upon the person if that's what you get? You know, with working with John Stewart, he would sometimes just go like, "Oh, that's funny," and he took pleasure in mm -hmm. it because he immediately because he'd done he'd been working with jokes for so long that he understood. Oh, that's a machine that works. That's a joke that works. That that will work. But sometimes it's just like you know when you're when you're in a rush to put on a daily show, it's like, yeah, that's funny. Just there's Keep no going. yeah yeah there's no the the but. You know, enjoy, enjoyment of life is uh, is far and few between. Yeah. Sometimes, and amu amusement is something we seek uh, to survive emotionally, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we tell stories around a campfire. I mean, this is my own prehistory, P pure pure 
<laughs> this is my own version of Jimmy Carr's completely unscientific, unresearched, prehistoric speculation, right? <laughs> but you know, we we gather around a we gather around a fire to tell stories to each other, simply to take our mind off the fact that we are surrounded by darkness mm -hmm. uh, that wants us to die. You know, with things in it that want to eat us. Um, Mirth, and jokes everybody. Are, and jokes are stories. Sorry. Jokes are very short stories. I'm sorry, Matt. What did you, what, what did you say? I, you said we're in darkness surrounded by things that want to eat us and inevitably that you can't escape death. And I just went, mirth, everybody. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what jokes are. But jokes yeah. are, sto are stories, yeah. you know. And I think, you know, sto stories for, do do a lot in, in every culture. They they form social cohesion. They tell myths of of a, of a group's origin. They, cre they create a sense of... Um, of history, uh, often false history, um, and uh, group specialness, but also sometimes they just, they just distract you. They, and that's a really important function of story. And jokes are just very, very short stories. Every joke is a little narrative. It reminds me of something, Danielle, you had said earlier that stuck with me, which was, I, I, I think you were saying you wanted to explore humor is something that allows us to, to go places that we wouldn't otherwise go without it. Um, mm -hmm. and you're far more eloquent and I'm sure you had a great question based around that, but that, that was the part that stuck with me and I jotted it down. Cause I was like, that's a really good, we should break that open and talk a little bit about that. Uh, and I was hopeful I could tee you up to kind of elaborate on what your thought process was and, and see what we think about that concept. Oh, I just, I mean, I think it's echoed in, in the things everybody's been talking about, but the thing that kind of in terms of the experiential piece of it, John talking about the relief that comes from the, like when the tension disappears. And I think that relief is so powerful because we really, we really need that. We really need that. Even if the tension isn't specific, the joke brings it to something specific and then gives us that kind of relief. And it makes me think about actually Emily Nagoski's work on, she wrote a book called Burnout. And what's cool is she talks about the stress cycle and how the telling the story and the gathering. And I'm realizing that the humor piece of that is probably a critical, like you said, evolutionary biological mechanism where it's like, what do you do with all of that in the body? It needs to go somewhere. And this is a great way to release it. Um, and what we were talking about, Matt, with that was this idea of, I, I feel like the um, whether it's self-effacing humor or humor to kind of level the playing field with people, the idea that it's safe to go places that wouldn't feel safe if you can go there with a lightness of spirit. I feel like that's where humor is an incredible skill. You can talk about the truths that are hard to face without it. You can have the conversations with a partner or friends that you can't have without it. You can go inside the parts of yourself and face that stuff. It's like if you have if you have the ally of kind of humor with you, because mm -hmm. then it's, it's like, I, I don't know what the metaphor would be for the, the darkness, what humor does, but it feels like you're not um, alone in it or it's not, um, it's not the kind of the well, end right. of everything. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it, laughter is a, a huge release and I'm sure there's been lots of, lots of medical studies and what it does in the body. But even if you're just talking about the, the way we talk about laughter, it's like, laughing oneself to tears peeing mm. oneself laughing it's all about <laughs> it's all about expulsion of right. <laughs> of of feelings mm. and energy and stress and the fact that it is as you point out sh shared in a in a space is a is a, a consolation and a comforting feeling that you are not alone mm. in sort of feeling and recognizing 
certain truths that may be a little bit hard to face up to. But I think that it is like it's just a rehearsal and survival. Like a, a stand-up set is often just a series of stressful crises that are then relieved right. by a punchline, mm -hmm. and you survive each one, and you all survive together. And I think mm -hmm. that's part of the feeling of being in a, a comedy audience. I mean, when you activate, I, I call it maybe the realm of play versus seriousness. When you activate play, suddenly you can talk about anything at all. Uh, many of which would be, you know, maybe it'd be really horrifying to imagine otherwise. And so you're in this kind of imaginary world where, you know, things can happen like somebody can die a horrible death and it's hilarious. Um, or, and so you can imagine all these different scenarios kind of safely. So it almost opens up this whole ability to imagine things safely. Only the jester can tell the king the truth. <laughs> yeah, it's, right. it's like, it's that a critical, asshole. it's it's probably one of the, I never thought of it as a survival piece, but that, um, that idea that the human predicament, that you can be more resilient in it because you have this incredible coping mechanism. <laughs> Just like the 1820s, you had to laugh. You had to laugh. Had to. Sometimes. <laughs> But then it's I, the 200 year anniversary of those 20s. How, how the should bicentennial of Maine. Uh, how I, should we celebrate this? Wow. Uh, maybe the return of Mirth, perhaps. I don't. I don't know. It's a bit tough right now. Safely in that distance would be my recommendation. Is how we celebrate. Go, go get some Burton Eye albums and and uh, <laughs> contemplate what humor means to Maine. I'm, I live part time in Maine, and that's all I can think about. And the funny Maine's thing beautiful. is, like. I, my desire to be funny has really declined now that I unexpectedly have had, you know, have had children. They are grown. My genetic material is out there in the world. <laughs> and I'm in midlife contemplating my own mortality. My desire to be ha ha funny and get out on a stage and tell jokes is at zero level at this point. There's no reason for me to do it. Um, but you know what? The the beauty of the human. Death uh, laughs at us all. Sorry. The <laughs> human hero's journey, though, is perhaps in a couple of decades, yeah. humor will return anew in a totally different form to you because you don't care anymore. Well, that's true. I could get old like George Burns. I'll take... I think I guess that would be better than sitting in my garden like Thanos at the end of Infinity War, having killed half, <laughs> half the people. I don't know. I will not pretty content, uh, exhausted. <laughs> but I know that's the most subversive part of that movie. But that's another. I don't want to talk about <laughs> Marvel movies. That's there might be other options that's different... too than those two. Maybe no, those maybe, are the two. I think pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. We've done extensive work on this. We've narrowed it down. Those are the two. <laughs> <laughs> choose wisely. Yeah, I was, I've been working in my lab all afternoon. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, I realized the other day that um, if I lived in Logan's run, I would have been off a really long time ago. And I found that ooh. hilarious. <laughs> I love a Logan's run reference. Boy, oh right? boy. I can tell yeah. we're all of a certain generation. That's for you, my old friend. I believe you would have renewed. <laughs> I believe you would have renewed. Thank you. <laughs> I echo those sentiments. Uh, there's part of me that still wants to live in a suburban Dallas mall where that was shot. <laughs> Very comforting to me. Uh, no so, idea what you're talking about. Really, Ellen? Too young. Yeah. Too young. Huh. It's a science You'd be alive movie. in the movie, but you're not old enough to know the film. Logan's Run, watch it. It's fantastic. If yeah, every, everybody's talking about Dune, but Logan's Run is, is in that okay. canon. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. 
hundred percent. Uh, we're we're coming into the home stretch, which means that we're uh, as close to a segment as we have on this show, and that is the part where I turn to Dr. Alan Cowan and ask if he's read anything interesting or has any knowledge pertaining to how the emotion of the day has been observed in the animal kingdom. Now we talked a lot about the tickling mice. Uh, previous episodes have revealed, of course, my favorite, the capuchin monkeys who exchange currency for monkey pornography. Uh, but I'm wondering, outside of those uh, previously discussed areas, um, talk to me about mirth with animals and some of the parallels. We've already talked about play fighting and things of that nature. What was probably the most surprising discovery for you as someone, a self-professed lover of these animal studies that reads them all the time? What was something that really amused you in, in, in reviewing all this information, Alan? Well, I've talked a lot about a lot of different animal studies. So I, I think one of the, one of the things is probably something that you might've seen, which is, um, and this is not a scientific study, but an observation. And uh, I think it was either Blue Planet or Blue Planet 2, where they discovered that the dolphins have a game that they play with like a, a rock or a piece of coral. I can't remember where they kind of go up. If you haven't seen this, you should definitely watch it. And then they drop it and then they kind of spin around it for a while and they all kind of make little noises. I think that that is play. Yeah. And what they're doing seems a lot like laughter. Although a lot of what dolphins do seems a lot like laughter. So maybe that's a bit of a stretch, but I think that there's something there yet to be discovered. Um, you see kind of similar behaviors in other really, really intelligent uh, mammals, elephants and apes. Um, if, and, and a lot of this is hard to study because you don't really, even with humans, you don't really know what it is that's funny. Like <laughs> uh, one of the things that... I, uh, I saw an elephant once in New York uh, at an open mic in 2003. Had a really incredible tight five minutes on uh, <laughs> on the tech bubble and uh, and and uh, the, the TV show that Emeril Lagasse made. And the material you can't perform it anymore. It doesn't hold up. But it was really amazing. <laughs> Yeah, um, there, there, there's some, you know, there's examples like that. I don't know, there's, there's this um, the video of the orangutan that um, the, they're showing it like a magic trick and it just starts basically laughing hysterically. That's another one to look up. Yeah. Orangutan laughing hysterically. That's the, that's the extent to which I can. <laughs> any video that does a magic trick for an animal is one of yeah. the things that brings me great joy and quite quickly as well. It's a very quick hit. If I know I need something to pick me up, it's animals <laughs> reacting to magic tricks. It's wonderful. Yes. Okay. I, no, that I one concur. is probably my favorite. I mean, the, the orangutan just starts laughing and like falling over, literally falling out of its chair. Um, so I think that you, you see actual examples of humor and mirth in the animal kingdom, even aside from play fighting, which is like the most basic and then sort of like play chasing dogs do that too. And, yeah. um, and, uh, you know, pretty much every animal that you interact with, if you play fight with it, um, whether it's a mouse or a dog, I, I shouldn't say animal, any mammal, mm -hmm. um, it's, it's probably going to, uh, well, if, if you're friendly with it, enjoy it in some way. <laughs> and you can pick up a video of almost any yeah. mammal being played with. I'm going to guarantee you those, those dolphins are playing because yeah. that I've, I've been, I've been in a boat when I would see a porpoise come up for air for a second and then go back into the dark, cold, deep waters of Maine. That's like, that's a ruinously boring life. You gotta have some games. You gotta, <laughs> I mean, what are you doing all day dolphins? You're just swimming around 
talking to each other in your complex language and then trying to eat fish all the time, <laughs> you've got to come up with some other stuff. Your, their brains are too big. Oh, They've yeah. got to be playing games. They've got to have amusement. That's how they survive. Yeah. yeah. And That's the euchre of the ocean. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The euchre of the ocean. My goodness, Danielle. Yeah. <laughs> I thought Logan's run was going to be the most obscure <laughs> reference. Yeah. She keeps whittling it down. <laughs> wow. This, they're Skittles. Not the candy, oh, the yeah. game. The British parlor game. <laughs> yeah. Was, she's going to keep <laughs> narrowing the audience until John, she's just making jokes about things in your room. Well, it's just gonna be, you know, jokes are... Yeah, jo I mean, jokes are also how you find your your people in, yeah. in the world. You know, it is a it is a social signal. Like, here's what I know about. Here's what I think is funny. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe you maybe you know some of the same TV shows and or share some of the same values. Exactly. So. Exactly. I have friends where that some that that is the full extent of our relationship is we discuss the same TV shows and things that we enjoy. We do that once every couple of weeks. We've done that for years and we're totally content with that. That's what our relationship is. We enjoy the same things. We talk about those things. We go back to our lives and live separate worlds. But like, that's totally great. We enjoy each other for that. And that's. Yeah. Just put a make it a podcast and monetize it. Exactly. That's right. The, that's where that's the step we're missing. That's where, that's where the big podcasts are. A couple of guys talking about Laverne and Shirley or whatever. Exactly. Episode by episode. Yeah. Oh, man. If you did a Laverne and Shirley episode by episode podcast, top how, of the charts. How are there not 30 of those already? There, there probably to be. are. Yeah, there there probably be. are. There have to be. Look, I was the idiot who, who proposed to my network that I do a episode by episode rewatch of iPodius. Excuse me. I was a, I was a jerk who suggested to my network that I do an episode by episode rewatch re podcast of iClaudius. We called it iPodius. Got it. Okay. okay. Yeah, so check it out, please. Check it out of the Maximum Fun Network where Judge John Hodgman resides as well. That's my plug. Perfect. Perfect. And That's... great timing. It's, uh, it's the time for the plugs. But real quick, Alan, thank you uh, again for indulging my animal questions. And so especially coming out of our horroring and anxiety episodes i was excited for something that was just playful and, and joyous and 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 that was exactly what you gave me so well, thank I you almost, for that i almost talked about orcas torturing animals for fun but you know I, i'm not going to go there now hang on <laughs> wait what different do you episode, mean? Dude. different episode different episode <laughs> wait, are you going to make me wait for the orcas torturing dolphins story <laughs> is not orcas are no fun orcas, orcas are, are, are sadistic right? yeah they're sadistic not funny animals. they're not funny animals but they do play with their food Responsible for a majority of the work out of the 1820s, from what I understand. Uh, orcas were writing a lot of those. Um, all right. They, they, orcas deserve whatever they have coming to them. They're damn straight. They're truly, you know, they're truly the, oh, the jerks of the toothed whales. Look, I've said it before in this show, and I'll say it again. This podcast is decidedly anti-orca, okay? We know they're mean. We know they're evil. That's all I'm saying. It's, they're it's, smart. They're evil. They're cruel. It's well, we're, we're cruel to them, too. I think we could. <laughs> uh, I, you know what? Ask a right whale. I think they'd say the orcas have had it pretty easy. <laughs> if, if any whale species needs to laugh, it's the right whale. Boy, oh boy. Uh, and there's a podcast all about that. Uh, the right whale's time has come and you should check it out. Pretty it's... much it has time. There's, I think there are only about 200 left. <laughs> you know why they're called the right whale? Because they were the right whale to, to hunt. Huh. That's there. Aren't, there aren't many left. That's true. That's a bummer of a reason. Yeah, I read the main newspapers. There's a lot Is of coverage. Yeah. yeah, there's a lot. It's a big argument about how to protect the remaining population of the right whale without uh, interfering with a lobster fishing industry. It's uh, 
I can't talk because you make listen a podcast like a matter- part of your profession, so yeah, I can't tell it's true. No, it's I was going to say, like a matter for Judge John. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Hand to God, earlier before you said you, uh, it was because you've had children and you've lived there that you've, you've no longer felt the need to be a comedian. I thought you were going to yeah. say it's because you moved to Maine. Uh, is that you no longer felt the need to be funny or be a comedian? No, Maine has its own style style of humor, but I just went there to disappear into the woods. Beautiful. And genuinely think about right whales. So, from what I hear, it's the perfect place for that. It's the right place to hunt a right whale. <laughs> there we go. All right. <laughs> Uh, thank you so much. Uh, I I don't know how to really, you know, on behalf of myself and my co-hosts here, I must extend an absurd amount of gratitude to you, sir, Mr. John Hodgman for taking time out of your schedule to hang out with us. It means a lot that you were here today, uh, and and shared your stories and perspective. Thank you. It was really great to to speak to you all. Thank you for having me. You can hear me on the judge John Hodgman podcast on maximumfund.org. If you want to hear more about my thoughts about Maine, you can buy my book vacation land or take it out of the library. Or its follow-up <laughs> book of funny stories called Medallion Status. I also co-created an animated show on Hulu with my friend David Reese, which is a very a very funny PG thirteen show full of heart and mirth, and it is called Dicktown. We called it Dicktown. That's what we decided to call it. I don't want to try to explain it. Bit.ly slash Dicktown. Please check it out. It's a, it's a, a a labor of love, and it is mirth. Fan. Fantastic. Uh, again, thank you to Alan and Danielle for also making time to join me on today's episode. Uh, and, and of course, a big thank you to you, person listening to all of this or watching, however you're consuming. Uh, if you really enjoyed today's episode, we got a bunch more you should check out. Uh, and hey, while you're at it, why not tell a friend or two about us as well? Throw us a five-star review if you're feeling really generous. Yeah, I don't know how, how, how long this podcast can go on with just this one listener. <laughs> I think I think you should you should try to double the audience at least. By but next this time. person has been so loyal, John. No, I know. There's nothing against this person, but I just they've showed up every time. Higher. And yeah. to that, I thank you, Mom. Because without you, (laughs) really, what are we doing here? Uh, We'll be back next week. But in the meantime, if you have any questions whatsoever that you'd like answered, feel free to email us at thefeelingslab at hume.ai. I'll put it down here. T-H-E-F-E-E-L-I-N-G-S-L-A-B at hume.ai. Send us any question you got. Uh, Farewell for now from all of us here at The Feelings Lab. I'm Matt Forte. Thanks again, everybody. Stay safe out there.